<laughs> okay, we ready? Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I am Andy Ori, and alongside me is my co-host Pippa Sturt. Hi, Andy. <laughs> and today we are joined by Paul Powsland. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Good, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Paul is a barrister and founder of Lawyers for Nature. What a thought. Who aim to provide representation, campaigning, and legal resources on environmental protection and rights for nature. Paul was recently interviewed by uh, Mr. Farage on GBTV about his work to much acclaim. Uh, so, Paul, how's it going? I'm good, although apart from being uh, late here, because I thought it was going to be tomorrow. I hope I'm not too flustered. Yeah. You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah, I mean, we always like to ask this, and, and clearly you you have some um, passions in your heart. You know, what what is keeping Paul up at night? What is keeping me up at night is the ongoing crisis in the climate and nature, which threatens to destroy our entire civilization and kill millions of people. Well, that's, that's a good that's cheery, a cheery start to the podcast, isn't it? When did you start giving a shit about this? Excuse my French. Uh, that's a good question. Probably during my 20s, I think. I sort of gradually fell in love with nature, um, began planting trees and going on climate marches and things like that. Um, and then I think the founding of Extinction Rebellion was when I suddenly became aware of the, the greater, um, the real importance and urgency of the challenge we face, I guess. Are you were you in London or you grew up in the countryside out of interest? I grew up in the suburbs, um, down in Surrey, the non-posh part of Surrey, if I may say. Woking. <laughs> Chertsey. Chertsey, oh, there you go. So I, there was some greenery around me, but not much. And now I live on my boat on the river roading in East London embarking. When was Extinction Rebellion founded? Autumn 2018, I think. Okay, so not actually that long ago. What are they trying to achieve? I mean, you know, I, I'm definitely not wanting to relate myself to some of Nigel's uh, <laughs> chat. I'm sure. But, you know, I think a lot of people will know them from sort of, you know, shutting down London kind of thing. You know, do you know the, the sort of story of what, what they were trying to achieve? Or is it that they try and use large, massive protests to just bring attention to the problem? Is that their aim out of interest? I think that's a key aim. Yeah, it's to sound the alarm about what is happening. And unfortunately, the situation with the media in this country is that if you don't do something interesting, they just ignore you. Yeah. Right. There's countless examples of massive demonstrations. People walk from one point to another, gets no coverage in the media whatsoever. And people may or may not like it, but ultimately the kind of actions with the Extinction Rebellion does or now Just Stop Oil, you know, they may be annoying, but they, they do constantly bring people back to the fact that we are in the midst of a major crisis that is only going to get worse and we need to take action. Yeah, and to be fair, even the massive demonstrations, you know, the demonstration for the when the Iraq war was happening, the demonstration, I really enjoyed the demonstration when Trump was coming to the UK, but whatever, you know, and the various Brexit demonstrations, etc. They might have got news coverage, but they didn't actually do anything because the Iraq war was still prosecuted, Brexit still happened, Trump's helicopter flew over the demonstration. Uh, you know, so... Do we think that the way in which Extinction Rebellion or Just Stop Oil do it is more likely to have an actual effect? I guess what, what they have done, they, they have really brought it to the national consciousness. There's a, a graph where you can see the number of... Changed your life. Exactly. And I would say probably thousands of other people who would now say that they are climate activists because of 
what Extinction Rebellion did. And actually, I think one of the biggest legacy effects of Extinction Rebellion is, is putting climate activists into the different, not just having big demos in London, but putting them into their professions and into their communities. Yeah. So for instance, I set up a group called, or helped set up a group called Lawyers Are Responsible, doing climate activists in the legal profession. I wouldn't have done that without XR. And that has happened literally thousands of times. There's so many organisations that now exist. In answer to the question of effectiveness, it seems to have been the most effective thing so far yeah. for galvanising consciousness and action. And um, whether it's the ideal one, I don't know. But I guess to anyone who criticises it, I would say, you know, they genuinely welcome other people setting up other things. If you think you can outcompete XR and climate action or just support in climate action, they would love you. They would love you to set it up and prove them wrong and show that they're idiots, you've achieved nothing and that you can achieve more. Because they, they, and, and that's not that's not being sarcastic. They would genuinely yeah, welcome yeah, that. Yeah, it's fair, it's fair said. So you got inspired by it. So I would say, you know, lawyers probably think they change the world more than they do in reality. But what are you trying to imply about no, lawyers? It's just, you know, Fuck being off. slurring, generally. But you know, what what is your plan? It's like I said, like an impossible problem. Let me let me phrase it a different way. It's like for me, what you know, we're a business podcast. Ultimately, I've been desperately trying to ask people, like, what should businesses do? Like, okay, climate change problem. Like, what the fuck should I do? Like, should I recycle? You know, whatever. It's like, give me a list and we'll start doing them. And there's so little practical, like, this is what you need to be doing. Is that kind of where we are in the journey? It's like, we know they've got this big problem. We don't actually have a clue to solve it. What position are you taking? You're taking the position of like, let's use the law. Where, 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 you know, what angle are you coming from? There's about five questions. In I there. know, and there's there's also different areas that I work on. So although um, I do climate activism, I feel like I should. It's not actually my passion. My passion is nature activism. Yeah. Protecting the natural world is my is what I feel called to do, and that's what Lawyers for Nature does. So Lawyers for Nature is even related to climate. Yeah, um, okay. But obviously, if we, if we don't get the climate crisis sorted, it all must the rest have of an it effect, is, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're all related, of course. So maybe I can give the example of what what lawyers. For nature is hoping to do and show yeah. how that can maybe change yeah. things with climate as well. So one of our key things is to what I'm calling sort of change the source code of the law. Because at the moment you have all these different laws, but the, the basic source code of the law means that it's constantly against nature and constantly in favour of companies and business. So for what I mean by source code is, for instance, the fact that that companies actually exist. Yeah. <laughs> the companies at 2006. Like, yeah, I mean, definitely. ultimately, we go back a bit. You know, humans use the resources of the planet so we can get what we want, you know, and that's been the plan all along. It's like, you know, we, we're going to fucking do whatever it is we're going to do. We're going to get the shit out of the ground. And that, you know, maybe 100 years ago, that was fine sort of thing, but it's like reaching this critical point. It's a bit like animal rights, isn't it? That, you know, if it's cute and cuddly, we're all over it sort of thing. And we have such strong feelings about animal rights, you know. You're trying to say that it's just not okay legally to just go and get stuff and just use the use the natural world to for whatever you will you wish. Going into more detail, I mean, the cute and cuddly thing is interesting because actually people, I think, do have a massive connection to trees and rivers. A lot of people give up yeah. a lot of their time trees. for free just to look after them. You know, I've been involved in tree campaigns like in Sheffield where people literally gave up two years of their lives to stand under trees to protect them from being felled. Like, yeah. people absolutely love trees. And the river scandal at the moment with the sewage, people love mm. rivers. So I don't think that's the issue. I think it's just this issue we're not really thinking enough about this issue with the way that the law works rather than individual laws. And as an example of that, we already have environmental laws. The river I live on, there are constant sewage bills that are illegal, already illegal. And we don't need new laws as such. Yeah. But the problem is there's nobody actually enforcing and looking after those laws because the source code is wrong. And to give you an example of that, if we imagine like taking a company like Tesco, 
all these laws could exist that currently exist, like the law of contract, the law of theft, the law of trespass. But imagine if we abolished Tesco's legal personhood and said they couldn't sue for any of those things if you got them wrong. Or actually, we, we said that even if someone commits a crime against you, Tesco themselves can't call the police. Um, they have to uh, call a, a company's agency who enforces the criminal law on behalf of companies. But that that agency only enforces, say, 5% or 10% of the criminal offences that would happen. Yeah. What would happen to Tesco as a company? It would still have all the laws. All the laws would exist, but the company would collapse because it wouldn't have the ability to properly enforce those laws. And so what we're saying is that for nature, it needs to just be given the same parity as these fictional entities. So a legal personhood in exactly the same way as Tesco's yeah. or any other corporate yeah. as legal identity. Yeah, okay, because when you say change the source code, I think, well, isn't law the source code? It's more like change some of the sort of particular definitions within the source code or something. And we do have a problem, which is that, you know, arguably directors are just ridiculously protected. You know, it's kind of, you can't do any wrong in a limited company. But you're making a second point that there's a sort of, there's a, there's a step before a step. You can't ring the police. I'm, sort of- I'm, I'm making the point that it's, it's fascinating and in many ways a commendation of the intelligence of lawyers that we managed to give legal rights and legal personhood to entirely fictional entities like companies that we just made up in the 19th century before we gave them to trees and rivers which actually yeah. exist and for which we fundamentally depend on for our own survival as a species and as a society. But then I suppose the thing is with legal personhood you actually need humans behind that to affect it, to make it happen. Hmm. In the same way you would need, you know, who who are these people that are going to, as you say, give up their, you know, working lives or whatever to represent nature? Hmm. It's a really interesting question. That what You know, throughout history, we've gradually been extending legal rights and personhood because obviously 2,000 years ago, the only people who had legal rights and personhood were uh, men, rich, uh, white, citizen free head of household men in the Roman Empire and since then we've gradually been extending who can have that legal rights in person we've extended it to women we've extended it to slaves we've extended it to children now most of those people such as women and slaves can talk for themselves in the legal system but some can't and children is the best analogy for this right like children are legal persons you can't just infringe their rights just because they can't speak for themselves we say that no children have legal rights in personhood and if they can't actually speak for themselves in the legal system we give them a guardian mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we propose with nature And on a practical example, for instance, at the moment on the River Road in where I live, we've got lots of volunteers literally just giving up their spare time to look after the river. Now, this is London's third biggest river. And it almost blows my mind that volunteers are forced to look out for its interests. And, it, and what would they be looking out for in this instant, the sewage thing, is it? Well, I can give you, to finish off that example, if we just took the fines that Thames Water would already pay right now under Mm -hmm. the current law for the crimes they are currently committing on the river roading and just gave them to the river in like a trust fund, if you like, for the river. And instead of just giving the central government, which is where they go now, that could fund right now a team of a dozen people to look out for the river and its interests. So for instance, that would be walking the river, say once a month to check if there's sewage going in, um, coordinating the um, the rubbish that's going into the river and hassling the companies who are producing the packaging that ends up in the river that we have to put out in our spare time, going through every planning application that is next to the river to see if the river's interests are protected. You know, every couple of weeks in the, in the River Roading Group, we get people saying, there's this person who who's dumps a load of rubbish here doing a development there, and we're in our spare time running around trying to, to speak for the river. And it, it shouldn't have to be that way. And as to go back to the example before, you know, in the situation now where the river doesn't have legal personality, uh, imagine 
imagine the chaos that would happen if Tesco didn't, you know. Mm. And and the, the key difference is as well, actually, the river, people care so much about them, they will actually give up their spare time to speak for the interest of the river, even though it's difficult. No one's going to do that for Tesco, are they? <laughs> if Tesco wasn't paying them to do so. But you're saying more people would do it if they got paid for it. So it should be organised and paid for. I, I you know, I'm, I'm burning out because I'm trying to do my, my normal full-time job as a barrister and do this work for the river on the side. And I would love to, like, you know, lead yeah. a team or be part of a team that was looking out for the river in its interests. And we'd be able to get so much more done if it was actually our jobs. We're doing it kind of around the edges and it, it shouldn't have to be that way. The examples you give are, are, are well said. You know, who doesn't want to stop people polluting the river and stuff or hold those people accountable? I mean, collection and it might be very fragmented, but at the end of the day, like you say, if it was a, if there was a police force effectively that had a bit more rights to start turning out, issuing fines easier. I th- you struggle then, or I struggle then when I get to sort of infrastructure. I mean, we have a problem in this country anyway in the infrastructure. And I, my understanding of it growing up in this country is the individual is very powerful in this country. You know, it's quite hard to steamroller an individual if they don't they want to build a road and people are like we don't want this fucking road and there is a sort of you know there's that really difficult push and pull about the competitive of global society the requirement you know it's more efficient if we have good infrastructure because at the moment the system is set up to grow and you know do you just ground to halt i mean it's already so impossible to get infrastructure done if you add on to it that you're not just arguing with people you've got to argue with trees with personalities and stuff how do you bridge that balance you know I mean, we've got to do infrastructure, don't we? When you say infrastructure, what do you mean? Do you mean human infrastructure? Yeah, I mean human infrastructure, which is an interesting turn of phrase when you put it like that. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, we kind of have to keep building society, don't we? I don't know. Well, the point is we're we're rapidly reaching a stage where we've so outgrown... Like, the infrastructure and the economy and business doesn't just sit uh, in the ether. It relies on a physical reality of the earth to support it. And we are already significantly... There's another report actually, and we've overshot most of the ecological ceilings of a sustainable society, which means that we will head towards collapse. You cannot just grow indefinitely. We are bound to a physical reality. And if we overshoot those, it will then start to destroy the infrastructure we've built. Let me just take a small example of Britain, okay? I mean, 2% of Britain's covered in roads. You know, it's a really green place. We industrialise first. You know, I'm always surprised when I go around, even though there's a lot of us on this island, that it's like, it's not, you know... Lots of green space still, you know, it's not a complete... When you say it's like we're we're shooting over ecological boundaries, it's like, you know, we have quite amazing farming and sort of like... Yeah, but hang on. Green space, like you're saying most of this country is green space, sorry, but... Like, originally, it wasn't fields, it wasn't Sure, grass. sure, but after hundreds of years of doing it, I'm just saying, Britain's in a reason... Sorry, re- no, no, we've got to get into it, because I want to save the planet, so I'm, not, I'm just saying, to understand it, you've got to get to the point, and it's like... But fields are a man-made thing, right? And they're not necessarily ecologically it's good. Been pretty, it's been pretty stable for quite a long time, I would say, you know, in terms of the amount of space that is urban area. London's been sort of growing a bit here, a bit there, but, you know, population's been slowly going up, but... You know, you take the country as a whole. I don't. You don't go around Britain and just see like the end of ecology. You see, you know, actually quite a green place. Now that's ignorant, and it may it may be that you can't see the truth. So, sort I of don't thing. want to say it's ignorant, but I think this this idea of a green and pleasant land um, it ignores the reality, which is that we are one of the most nature depleted countries on earth, yeah. and many of the places, even our national parks, that we see of as this wonderful landscape are actually blasted ecological deserts like Dartmoor like loads of the uplands are completely 
And what do you mean, mean by that? They're screwed in terms of, you well, know... They haven't got any life or trees There's on no them. Biodiversity. <laughs> There's no biodiversity. You know, and you say, oh, it's been pretty stable for quite a long time. In geological terms, it's not a long time. To go back to a concrete example on this... Concrete, there we go. <laughs> a Does non, it have holes A non-concrete example of this. Um, no, I like the pun. It was an unintentional pun, which makes it better, the, of this infrastructure debate. These things are not necessarily... Shouldn't be in opposition, or shouldn't be seen necessarily in opposition. A lot of the time, when you take a long-termist view and a holistic view, it's actually really economically in our favour to look after and restore nature. As an example on the roading, I walked the whole river um, this year, for 45 miles, starts at Sandsford Airport, goes into the Thames, and mapped every single metre of it, every single feature I could find. And what I found was that the upper catchment is all, it's all rural, but they're just bare fields, ploughed, often on slopes, straight into the river. So what happens when it rains? The water goes straight into the river, and then it, go, it barrels downstream, flooding, taking out, taking out infrastructure, flooding, that kind of thing. Now, there are two couple of solutions that we can either build what's called hard infrastructure, which is very expensive and doesn't really work that well, where we just build more and more concrete embankments, or we can actually make the whole of the upper catchment more sponge-like so the water doesn't run off as quickly. So we don't need to spend millions of pounds on new flood defences further downstream or rising insurance bills because people's homes are getting flooded. Mm. And at the same time, by doing that, if we reforest parts of the catchment, we increase native biodiversity and we actually help those farmers because it's not helping them that all of their um, all of their soil is running off into the river. And we also help drought because how long can we as a society survive if we don't have water? Not very long. And we're going to run out of water in and again, the infrastructure argument is build more reservoirs. But what if the whole catchment was a reservoir because water percolates through it less, less quickly? Why, why is Thames Water putting sewage, sewage in the river? Because they, it's profitable. Because they can. And because that was going to be my point, is that we have a bigger problem, I think, at the moment, particularly with the water companies who happen to be the kind of bogeymen of our time right now, in that it came out that there's been loads of illegal, like most of the water companies have been illegally dumping runoff when they didn't need to for, you know, the last couple of years. And government has done nothing about it because it's profitable. I mean, part of the reason we're sitting here today doing this podcast is because, in my view, small and medium-sized businesses get a really bad rap from some of the big pharma, big this, big that. Now, you get it at a small level. You have fly tippers. Do you know what I mean? So, it, I mean, it does shock me in this day and age that you're talking about Thames Water, you know, a, 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 an authority that shouldn't be doing... This, 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 is, this goes into what the, what the source code of the company is. Again, example on the roading, there's a, a, an outfall where they're putting sewage in um, to the river illegally. It's a complete criminal offence. The EA, the Environment Agency, doesn't prosecute them because they haven't got the resources to do so. And we've asked... I've literally been in meetings for like the last three years, giving up my time for free, asking Thames Water nicely to not commit criminal offences. And what are they? These are humans there. Yeah. Yeah, and they're, you know, like, they... they're like, well, we'd like to do something about this, but it's really expensive. It's going to cost us millions, so we're not really going to do anything. Well, no, let's get to that point, which is the curious thing. It's They're doing it out of necessity too. Thames Water is, is fucking not running its company very well, not making any money. They don't have the money to go and fix it. Well, that's because that's because they gave tens of billions of pounds they should have spent fixing it to the shareholders. Oh, did they? Yes. Oh, my God, how have you missed this? Well, I've got it's a the lot key, to do It's the key too. order. Order. The key part of the puzzle is follow, follow Fergus Sharkey and Twitter. He'll tell you, basically, the, the amount that they've given to shareholders since 1990 is about exactly equivalent to what it would have cost to upgrade the sewage system so they don't put 
crap into our rivers. But the point is, is this goes back to the source code points. Thames Water's source code is to make as much money as they can, to be as profitable as they can within what they can get away with. And what we're trying to change at Lawyers for Nature is to change that source code a bit. And this is what we're calling nature-positive corporate governance, is actually getting companies to voluntarily write into their constitutions about uh, rights of nature and to put uh, nature directors on the board to represent the interests of nature in their company. Plus, Thames Water kind of have a monopoly, don't they? I mean, I don't think I can buy my water from anyone else. I mean, that that's a huge part of this, isn't it? Sorry. Sorry, no, I was just going to say, but it also seems to me that there are uh, two other issues, which is somehow it seems to me we've got to be able to divide companies from government. And that doesn't, there seems to be like a, like they're intertwined at the moment in such a way that a lot of government isn't willing to do anything because they've also got interests in companies. And secondly, we've got to somehow fund agencies. As you say, the Environment Agency doesn't have the money to do it. We've somehow got to fund these things better in a way that allows the people that are supposed to police these things to have the ability to do that. There's some really nice ideas coming through. Getting back to the principle, the principle is that these things won't happen unless these things have rights. And therefore, the fields should have more trees in it. Or, you know, we we should make them more absorbent for water or something. That would be a pressure on the farmer, would it? Because the, you know, let's take the example. It would be like, well, as a farmer, these things have more rights. So you've got to act differently as a farmer. Is that how it works? Not ever more rights. And again, this is a a key issue is um, a lot of people think that if you were to give nature rights, it would then mean that nature's rights would always trump human rights. Of course not. Um, Rights, for instance, human rights are always balanced. So there's what's called the reasonableness and proportionality test. The only absolute right right that you have is the right to life. All the other rights under the Human Rights Act are all balanced. So, you know, you have the right to freedom of speech, but it's limited. You can't go and shout fire in a crowded theatre or whatever it is, you know? Um, and that's reasonable. Well, I've never thought of doing that. Yeah, well, don't do it because you're not don't allowed do it. to. <laughs> um, <laughs> Damn it. And um, they're balanced by reason and proportionality. So, you know, um, if, if you were to draft up a set of rights of nature, um, each one of those rights would have to be in balance. So, for instance... If we were to say the river has the right to flow, we've built various weirs and dams on it. So then we'd have to work out, well, actually, is it reasonable and proportionate to remove those weirs? What are they actually doing? A lot of the time they're doing nothing except except impeding fish passage. If they've got an important role to play, then it might be decided actually on that balancing exercise, we can't remove that weir. Or, you know, this tree actually does need to be removed because it's about to fall on someone and kill them. How do you have that balancing exercise? Is that two lawyers debating or two, you know, what is the reality of that balance? Yeah, I mean, that's what you do in court, isn't it? But a lot of stuff wouldn't end up in court. You're a barrister dealing things would end up in court. He wants you know. things to end up in court. But yeah, well, most <laughs> things, you know, I mean, I remember being told years back, you know, you don't sue someone for less than 300 grand. It's like, you know, most contracts are a lot less than that. It's like, you know, end of court, ending up in court is like, you almost wish you could end up in court, but to get there, it just costs a fortune. It's fucking complicated. Sorry, law- lawyers are an incredibly inefficient industry. Sorry, they no, are. No, I agree, you know, I agree. Um, so it's like in practice, the balance of of of, of how this being debated is, is 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 harder to see. But maybe these things are such big issues. A lot, they... a lot of the time, for instance, you know, it doesn't end up in court because you know you've got the human rights act. So the police mm. know what what the outcome would be if they disrespect someone's human rights. And only in those kind of like edge cases do things actually go all the way to to court. And we see it, you know, with again with children that um, the interests are the rights of the child are paramount. But actually, figuring out what the rights of a child mean can be quite complicated. This gets back to my basic thing. I am a small or medium-sized business. 
What do I need to do? And no one gives me any information. They, they, they're similarly, I mean, God, these are difficult decisions. Do you know what I mean? They're sitting around a table. No one fucking knows the answer. Nobody knows how to save the planet. What you can do is to bring the earth, bring nature into your corporate governance so that when you make a decision, you have to actually think through the process, what actually does nature uh, want and need here? And how can that be balanced with our needs as a business? And that's what we did last year. In Lawyers for Nature, we um, got the cosmetics firm Faith in Nature, which is a reasonably large firm, to put nature on its board of directors or a representative of nature on its board of directors and change its articles so that it has to take nature into account in its decisions. So that's not saying you need to do your recycling or this in, in the first instance, saying let's work out how you're making those decisions first and then that's it will, then it will ripple through to all of your different decision making. So the simple answer is if you are in a company and you want to make that company better aligned with nature and not destroying the earth that we all depend on, put nature-positive corporate governance into the source code of your company. It really starts with bringing nature's voice into your corporate decision-making yeah. and putting your decisions through that prism. Because at the moment, almost no one has even taken into account nature's interests. My, in my opinion, all of these various crises stem ultimately from our broken relationship with nature that regards nature as a dead resource to be extracted for human ends. That idea which took hold very recently in human history, maybe 300 years ago in the UK, is one of the first places, and we've helped spread that around the world. That is at the root of the crisis we face. It is probably the most deadly idea in human history. We're talking about the Industrial Revolution now. They're not directly connected, I wouldn't say. Like, haven't, I think humans have probably been thinking about that for quite a long time. We're quite selfish monkeys underneath it. You know? That's not we'll true. I mean, like most, most indigenous societies have a view of us intimately connected with nature and bound up with nature and wouldn't do be so stupid as to live so unsustainably that they would overshoot the carrying capacity of the but nature. But that's like inhabit. packaging of food. I think it's all, I mean, I'm only saying, I think it's older than 300 years. It's like once you start disconnecting physically from nature, the indigenous societies are like, I mean, they are living in nature out of everything is, you know, they understand this sort of symbiotic relationship. It's like, you know, where does milk come from the shop? You know, it's like... I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, of course, that we can or should go back to that kind of... That genie is well and truly out of the bottle. However, it behoves us to be humble and to take a lot of lessons from those societies that were actually sustainable. You know, the, the Aborigines lived in Australia for tens of thousands of years. They were a sustainable society. Ours is patently not. We've only had... 300 years of our society and it's already heading for the most calamitous collapse in human history and that will happen unless we change course and maybe we should look at some of the ideas of societies that were actually that worked that were sustainable and take as many of them as we can into our society to make it better and to make it sustainable and stop it from collapsing changing anything is a fucking nightmare and it's like things are changing so slowly you know that's why it's like the graph with death. I'm like, until until that graph with death is like kicking off. Okay, it's te it's great we have another recession, but it's also bad because no one's attitudes have changed about anything. No one felt the pain to say, fuck, you know. But again, again, it's that thing of this is really, really, really hard. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Because if you go... Nobody can change anything, so fuck it, I won't bother. No, it's not actually what I'm saying. I'm just saying most people don't do shit until you punch them in the face. But, you know, you say humans don't do anything till they're hit in the face, but I kind of think we are generally being more about climate than nature as a whole, but we are being smacked in the face over and over again, metaphorically, by all the shit that's happening. You know, thousands of people die in Libya because of floods. You know, 
And we seem to just be able to ignore it. I know, you know, it's another problem of society and how the capitalism works. It's not not affecting middle class upwards, really. It affects Because we've all got fans. Yeah, we've all got, you know, enough money. And, you know, I mean, God, when they announce, like, you know, every year on the BBC, this summer is said to be the hottest summer on record in Britain. And everyone's like, yes, you know. Yeah, but but I think people can and should, you know, like Faith in Nature, the person, Simeon from Faith in Nature, just literally was like, I want, he actually said, I want nature to be CEO so he went out and tried to do it he literally googled nature as CEO and literally happened to find an art, a newspaper article with me chatting on about rights of nature phoned me up and was like can we make this happen and I was like well I'll give it a go and then they came, became the first company to put nature on their board like you can just go and do things and actually in some ways for companies it's actually very easy to just go and do things. We have a very permissive regime in the UK. We do. Um, you can, as long as you're basically paying your debts as they fooled you, if the shareholders are in support, you can basically you do, can do what you want. I know, in most countries you have to tell, I mean, it's so weird, you have to say in France what you're going to do and yeah, then you yeah. can't change. Yeah, I know. And, 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 and we, um, we were almost surprised at Lawyers for Nature when, when we started researching. It was like, oh wow, we actually can just, do, we can put nature on the board. It turns out it's the company law is so permissive. Are you a, are you a business? Are you a, a charity? I mean, So we are a um, CIC effectively, um, but we don't we don't we don't it's not done for money it's basically you know we all have uh, other jobs that we do and we do it because we are passionate about it and we believe in the rights of nature and bringing them about as through whatever channels we found and you know in the uk we have a difficult political context where we can't even get stop water companies putting crap in our rivers so getting um parliament to do a law that you know will bring about rights of nature but would, would be quite difficult so that's why we've alighted on this um nature positive corporate governance because of the permissiveness of UK company law, it's actually a great vehicle to bring about rights of nature. So anyone listening to this, you do have the chance to do something different, become one of the first companies to put nature into your decision making. And you can do that tomorrow if you've got the shareholder support. But it is slightly scary that by the time it dawns on us that it is a serious problem, it's going to be way too late. The UK, just to get onto the climate issue, the, the UK is not, the issue is not going to be here that we become unlivable in temperature terms. Like, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll have suffered more flooding and things, but it won't be, it won't make it unlivable. What's going to happen here is the systemic impacts in other parts of the globe, for instance, particularly around food supply, um, a multi bread basket crisis where you have um, big grain growing areas. If yeah. one goes down at the moment, we can survive that. If multiple go down at the same time, that's going to cause havoc in industrial food systems. How much food does the UK import? I think a, fuck a lot. Ton. And where is the government's plan if those imports were to fail? Not how how much of how much of Greek agricultural land went under in flooding? A quarter. Wow. A quarter of Shit. their agricultural land. Yeah, one of the, the biggest flooding event in Greek history. I mean, I suppose most of Greece is mountains, so yeah, but they're, it's they're, not they're, they're really they fertile land and they're in their river yeah. plains. Yeah. What's the biggest problem in doing this? You know, to me, it always ends up back at the like, well, four year election cycle. You know, no long term plan as a country. You know, it's like. For me, it's like, how do we get a long-term plan? But, you know, what do you think you're doing at a local level or you're, you know, uh, lobbying? Where's the most difficult bit to change? Um, I personally like kind of what I call my activist diet um, of cycling between the micro and the macro. I think sometimes if you were to only do the big picture stuff, like, you know, campaign going on marches for big government changes in climate policy, that can become very disheartening when it doesn't change. Yeah. But if you only, the, the, the local stuff, like planting a tree, looking after nature in your area, going, doing litter picks, all stuff I do in my spare time, that actually I find very good for the soul because you have a direct impact. You know, I've planted hundreds of trees along my river with no permission, but actually you realise that actually that's not going to change things. And actually, if I don't do the climate activism stuff, all those trees I planted are going to get drowned by sea level rise anyway, you know? So you cycle between them. One of the reasons I got into nature protection law, for instance, I started off going on tree planting days 
and I realized how difficult it is. Like loads of it's those, hard to plant loads a tree. Of those baby trees die. Like it's oh, really wow. hard to keep them alive. It's really bloody hard. If you try, go and plant some baby trees and try and keep them alive over a couple of hot summers. When you're dragging a hundred litre container in a wheelbarrow of water down a you know, river towpath and lobbing it on you know, twice a week, you understand how difficult it is and why we need to keep every one of our mature trees that exist because yeah. they're really hard to recreate them. So that was for me, genuinely, one of the reasons I got into tree saving work because I was like, well, it's really hard to plant these little busts. You know, yeah. they don't they don't take very easily. And that, that is a learning in a sense. Yeah. And similarly, you know, with on the roading, um, done like massive litter picks. We do about half a dozen every winter. And, you know, out of some stretch of the river, we were getting like a hundred meter stretch, getting like 200 bin bags of rubbish in one year. And so I was like, oh, we really need to do something about the whole like, you know, single use packaging stuff. It seems to me like if people spent more time and got closer to nature, did the things like trying to plant trees or picking up litter or actually having a relationship with nature, that they would care more about it. I'm not entirely sure that people don't care. I just don't think that's a lot of the time reflected by our political class. I think a lot of people care deeply about their local nature. You know, NIMBYs come in for a lot of flack, but actually a lot of the time what they're doing is saying, I don't want you to destroy a piece of nature near to me. I think a lot of us are quite divorced from nature, particularly if we live in the middle of a city. You know, and as you say, we don't care about climate change because it's not happening to us. You know, if I never go near the sea or I never go near a river, it doesn't impact me. Some some of the main campaigners for, you know, river rights and to stop the sewage are swimmers and people who've been directly affected by it. What's also interesting, I think there is actually a divide in the Conservative Party, I would say, between um, what I call the kind of sell your granny for a fiver conservatives who are the kind of... My favourite type. (laughs) (laughs) A majority of the party right now. No, but I'm not sure they are because there there is an old school conservatism which actually believes in the word, it looks at the word conserve. It's it's even the name of actually like actually looking at the idea of chopping down our ancient trees and polluting our ancient rivers for money is is, is awful. Yeah, and I can see that divide. And actually, hopefully, that part of the party might start to take a bit more of the debate within it. The point is, you know, I I spend huge amounts of my spare time for free in the winter going to my river and caring for it. I'm not doing that because I'm being forced to by national service. I'm doing it because I love yeah, you, because I love you that river. You are thinking that people are like you. You are an extreme. Look at you. You 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 were affected no, by I don't, this thing. I don't, I don't think I am extreme. I don't think I am. I, I truly believe that all humans have a deep, deep desire to be close to, to love, to protect that. and care also, for nature. I, I, believe it's, I believe it's intrinsic yeah, to us. Yeah, but we're fucking lazy. I also believe that I, humans I also are lazy. Believe, no, humans aren't lazy. Humans aren't lazy. We're, we're, we're amongst the hard, most hard-working species. Depends. It depends on our mo- Our motivations are pretty fucked Order. up. Order! Order! The honourable gentleman has got to learn the art of patience. They're, they're, I think they're fucked up under a system, like the current one we have, that brutally... Um, separates us from nature and from each other and makes everything a competition over money. I believe at heart, human beings are good, hardworking, love nature. It's, and as It's a spectrum. You're, you're at one end, at the other end are people who litter. Explain that to me. Well, because I think they're deeply disconnected to nature. And I, I've been very fortunate to be so connected to nature. There's, there's a, a concept that I want to bring about. And one of the worst phrases I hear from environmentalists that I really hate is this kind of humans are a virus idea. Absolutely mm. hate it. Yeah, humans, I, I hate humans are not a virus. Um, the current system is destroying the earth. The current kind of, you know, industrial capitalist system is destroying the earth. But humans themselves are, I believe, on this earth to enrich life and to use their unique capability to do so. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. 
Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. So what's been your biggest fuck-up? I think one of my biggest regrets and one that has driven me a lot in this work, when I was a teenager, I think about 14, 15, um, my grandma was selling the family house that they lived in for like 50 years. And there's this incredible oak tree in the garden, probably 400 years old, like literally like a huge pollarded oak. Possibly the one that used to be on the edge of like Windsor Great Park from where we were living. And um, the developer wanted to to build over a house like, we need to get that down before we put the planning application in. Otherwise they won't allow the planning application because they want to keep the tree. And I was going to go and get a tree preservation order through, and I was persuaded against that by my family. It's difficult when it's your family, though, right? Because they were like, "Well, we're not going to sell the house then, and you know, lose us money and everything." The, else. That is a great microcosm of the difficult decisions you face yeah, in your I, life. I, I mean, serious, that one feels a bit more clear if it's that. I old seriously that regret thing. it, and the tree was shot down, and that tree mm. was more important to me. That that tree had existed probably from like Elizabethan era onwards. And would have carried on existing for hundreds of years, like far more than my fleeting existence. And I should have done more to save it. And that drives me. What would have it meant if you'd saved that tree? That you wouldn't have been able to what change your house and you would have had to move or something? Well, no, it just would have been that my grandma would have got slightly less money for your a house. Your family would have been all... really cross with and you. My family would have been really angry. But they angry would with me. have got over it. <laughs> they would have got over it. And I should have, I, I was I was a kid basically. I didn't have the guts to kind of to, to force it. But that that's driven me a lot of things to be like you know, earlier on this year. I was um, in Wellingborough, Northamptonshire, and I'd written an advice some tree campaigners to say that the tree shouldn't be chopped down and the police were basically clearing people away to try and chop to help the developer chop the trees down illegally probably unlawfully and I had a, cho- I had a choice there I could go back to like being that 14 year old just koto to let the trees be chopped down and regret it later but I didn't so I climbed the tree occupied it for eight hours got arrested and drew so much publicity to the whole thing on Twitter that the um, council uh, still block the felling and now the local people have raised £30,000 to just review it and save those trees a hun- I think a hundred like an avenue of a hundred lime trees and so I regularly have seen these things now where actually like that that initial mistake that initial that regret drives me to try and protect other trees Okay, so you went and chatted to Nigel Farage on GB News. I watched this interview and I thought, you know, I thought you you were making good points. Then I saw the comments. You were making reasonable points and the comments are just all like, this fucking guy, what's the fuck, you know, da 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 Now, that, that, that's bothersome, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just getting on my Twitter comments. So under, I, underneath of those comments on Twitter, I wrote um, a little tweet. Hi everyone, Paul here. One, yes, I have long hair. Two, no need to swear. Three, yes, climate change is real and is the most serious threat we face both as a country and as a species for a lot of insults here but a sad dearth of argument you can do better i'm sure of it <laughs> i've been trying in those when i speak on more right-wing stations to avoid a trap which i think quite a lot of environmentalists and maybe left-wing people fall into of constantly ceding the ground of love of country to the right wing and allowing them to fully occupy that space and instead to actually say no i also love my country but just maybe in a slightly different way than you do yeah and yeah you know, i think my favorite moment of that whole thing was farage basically saying um oh well you know china and india produce the most emissions we've got absolutely no influence and i sort of said well i'm very surprised that a patriot like you would say that britain doesn't have any influence nigel yeah yeah you, know, yeah, that- you did some good comedy. Yeah. Presumably that was an immense amount of fun. 
Uh, it was also quite stressful because you wouldn't let me finish my point. Um, no. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, have just, I done that? He just kept like barraging stuff at me without the chance to actually say much. But, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to go and have that and to, to say actually, you know, when you say love your country, what do you actually mean? What do you mean by this country? Is it just like a flag and a system of government we've had for a couple of hundred years? Or is it something deeper than that? Is it the people we share these islands with? Is it an arrogance about, it, uh, you know, that we're so fucking great? Is it our trees that have existed here since before any of our um, gov- systems of government came back? Is it our rivers? that have existed here since before humans even came to these islands because I I love those things so deeply that I've basically given up my life to try and You love them. your country. Uh, yeah. You love the country. Okay, Paul. So welcome to the 10-second quickfire round. Uh, this is where we're going to ask you a list of questions to get to know you a little better and you have about 10 seconds literally in this particular circumstance uh, to answer each question. Deaky the music. And we're off. What was your first job? Shelf stacker at Sainsbury's. Quite nice. What was your worst job? Uh, Shelf stacker at Sainsbury's. I mean, that's not great. No, I don't know, actually. Um, oh, God, I don't think... I don't think I've anything that's particularly bad. Um, I mean, being a paperboy, I had to get up at 6am in the morning in the dark wasn't great yeah. either. Yeah, winter. Yeah, here comes yeah. winter. Favourite subject at school? Uh, history. Mm. Uh, special skill? Sculpting nature. Ooh. So finding it, like using willows to build things and like just looking at nature and being like, how can we enrich and make this more beautiful? Oh, that's an interesting answer. What did you want to be when you grew up? A barrister, weirdly. I was one of those weird... Oh, well, that's oh, I know, I know. Actually, it's better than a I'm lawyer. Actually, I, I don't up. sound like... I'm actually from a working class background. I went to a comp and I just had this like weird thing where I wanted to be a barrister because I talked a lot and people were like, you should, you, you should be a you barrister. You like arguing, like yeah, debating. Arguing. Yeah, my parents said you should be a, you use that argument skills to be a barrister. What, what did your parents want you to be? Um, I don't think they really had an opinion, to be honest. Uh, my dad was a window fitter, and his only thing was, don't become a window fitter. Okay, good advice. Good, good. He, he didn't follow the rich dad, poor said, dad. Please, please don't follow in my footsteps and go and do something else. Uh, having said that, he said, I've had some very interesting days. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, what is your go-to karaoke song? Uh, probably Total Eclipse of the Heart. I just oh, appreciate any song that has cannons in it. There aren't enough yeah. pop songs with cannon sounds in them when you think about it. The 1812 Overture. Yeah, yeah. It just goes like that, you know. Oh, Normally, it's actually got well, cannons. I think, I think it's like a cannon type sound, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm not sure, like a big drum it's not sound. Cannon like Passion Bell sort yeah. of sound. Yeah. Um, office dogs, bearing in mind business or bullshit. Uh, I'm team cat, so I'd like to bring my cat to the office if possible. I'm glad you didn't bring him today. I think that would cause havoc in yeah. most offices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if it should be equality. If you can bring your dog in, I can bring my cat in and then I'll accept dogs. Maybe, maybe your answer should be you need to bring nature in. You know, I, I, I have a client and, and they've built like the most innovative building in London. They spent an absolute fortune on it. It's got like, the whole thing has got tomatoes and things and it was all about testing you know it cleans the air and happiness and what does it do and they get this like massive happiness spike when people take a tomato home and stuff so I get that when working from home on a boat so I was doing a court hearing once on online I literally looked out my window and literally about one or two feet away there was a kingfisher on a reed out my window oh. I was like trying to pay attention in the county court well this is like the most incredible native bird we have in all its blue regalia like sat right in front of me yeah hopefully what's, uh, what's your vice um, probably sugar. 
Ooh, sugar man. Sugar, and used to be coffee, but I'm getting a handle on it now of like, you know, using it sensibly as a kind of music. Not shooting it straight into your veins. Yeah, no, just using it it more consciously. Because before it's easy to just like tank up on it and realizing the more you tank up, the more you reduce your resilience. So if you have less in one time, you're going to have a better time the next week, you know. Very good, excellent. That was the end of the quick fire show. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, you've done very well um, about yourself. You got every question correct, uh, unlike our last guest. <laughs> so, have you got any recommendations of things we should read, watch, or listen to? So, I yeah, I mean, um, I've been on actually a couple of podcasts. There's one on called Spaceship Earth where I go into more detail about this idea of like rights of nature and um, its um, applicability to the law, which I think kind of talks about it in more depth. There are a few books on rights of nature, which I would recommend to people. I have Rights of Nature by David Boyd, and there's a few more coming out. And we also do produce things uh, at Lawyers for Nature, like little briefing papers and things like that. People want to read more about it. Thank you. Then we've come to the end of the show. Uh, thank you for coming, Paul. Uh, would you like to tell anyone anything? You know, is there, is there, You've got is a, there a pitch? Second pitch. Uh, yeah, so um, if you're interested in Nature on the Board or Nature Positive Governance, do get in touch with us at Lawyers for Nature. It's at lawyersfornature.com, and you can find our email address there. I think it's also inquiries at lawyersfornature.com. I'm on Twitter at Paul Powsland. So that's P- I follow you on Twitter. Oh, do you? Mm-hmm. Okay. P-A-U-L-P-O-W-L-E-S-L-A-N-D. And also Lawyers for Nature is on there at Law for Nature. And yeah, that's about it really. And I just say, you know, just to, to sum up, you definitely can do things. Don't feel helpless in this. Like we need as many people as possible to stand up for nature and the earth and everyone has a role to play. Beautiful. I enjoyed that a lot. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Pippa. Thank you, Dee. Thank you, Romeo. Where's he gone? (laughs) And we'll be back with our quiz, Business or Bullshit, on Friday. Until then, it's ciao. Ciao.